I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 69, The Right of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 3, pages 507 to 523. Am Church and the Homosexual Revolution. While it is true that the floodgates of homosexuality in Am Church were opened ever wider after the Second Vatican Council and the pontificate of Pope Paul VI, the moral rot had taken root decades, if even centuries, before. This volume opens with a historical review of the role of Americanism in the Catholic Church in America and how this heresy provided the foundation for the establishment of AM Church and its ultimate corruption and takeover by the homosexual collective. Chapter 2 follows up with an in-depth look at the rise of the homosexual collective within AM Church, most especially the role played by its dual bureaucracy, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, NCCB, and the U.S. Catholic Conference, USCC. On July 1, 2001, the bicameral NCCB slash USCC was merged into a single entity, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, USCCB. Chapter 12 is a tale of intergenerational homosexuality in Am Church during the first half of the 20th century. It highlights the lives of three prominent homosexual prelates, Colonel William O'Connell of Boston, Colonel Francis Spellman of New York, and Bishop later Cardinal John Wright of Worcester, and their heirs in Am Church through the next two generations. It is no coincidence that the earliest pederast-slash-homosexual scandals in Am Church occurred in the greater Boston area where Cardinals O'Connor, Spellman, and Wright once plied their vice. These three prelates produced an entire contingent of homosexual bishops and cardinals, some of whom continue to hold positions of power in the American hierarchy today. That the Roman Catholic Church in America had been able to stave off the formation of American Church, Am Church, for almost 300 years is a tribute to the strong faith of our immigrant forebears and the foreign priests and religious orders who continued to struggle against Americanism long after the Catholic hierarchy had made its decision to cast its lot with America rather than Rome. The American hierarchy came into being with the creation of the primal see of Baltimore on November 16, 1789, by Pope Pius VI, the first and only Catholic diocese in the infant nation, followed by the consecration of American Jesuit John Carroll as Catholic Bishop-elect of Baltimore at Lubworth Castle, Dorset, England, on August 15, 1790. Bishop Carroll enjoyed full centralized powers over all the territories, properties, parishes, and priests in the United States. Contrary to popular opinion, any revolution worth its salt always begins at the top. Since the Roman Catholic Church is, for better or worse, a hierarchical church, its structure was well suited for John Carroll's vision of a new American church, Am Church, of which he was to be a prime architect, a church made in the likeness of the new republic, unfettered by Roman chains. His first salvo against the Roman church was launched at his consecration when he deleted the ritual oath to extirpate heretics so as not to offend Protestants. 
The Carrolls of Carrollton were among the richest of the first families of the original 13 colonies and the largest landowners in Maryland. John Carroll was born in Prince George's County, Maryland on January 8, 1735, the youngest son of a well-to-do Irish merchant father, Daniel Carroll, and a fabulously wealthy mother, Eleanor Darnell Carroll. At the age of 12, John was sent to a Jesuit grammar school for one year at Bohemia Manor on the eastern shore of Maryland and then shipped abroad to be educated at the Jesuit College of St. Omer's in French Flanders, famous for its liberal education, training in good manners, and commitment to republicanism. He entered the novitiate of the Society of Jesus in 1753 and was ordained in 1789 at the age of 34. For the next six years, he taught philosophy and theology at St. Omer's and traveled extensively on the continent in England to, in the company of English notables. It was not until the summer of 1784, after Pope Clement XIV suppressed the Jesuit order, that this cosmopolitan priest returned home to America. In her enlightening expose on Americanism, the star-spangled heresy, Catholic writer Solange Hertz records that both records that John Carroll's older brother Daniel and his second cousin Charles were both lawyers turned politicians and each played important roles in the American Revolution. It was not surprising then that the newly returned brother and cousin should be drawn into a sundry of revolutionary quasi-Masonic intrigues that culminated in the opening, the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4, 1776. Charles Carroll, who helped finance the Continental Army, was the only Catholic to sign the document. Daniel Carroll later distinguished himself by joining the Lodge in May 1780. He rose to the post of Master Mason, even though all Masonic and secret societies were forbidden to Catholics under the sweeping edicts of Pope Clement XII, 1731, and Benedict XIV, 1751. During the war years, Father Carroll refused an assignment from his former Jesuit superior, Father John Lewis, that should have that would have taken him away from his home and his 70-year-old widowed mother. Instead, he carried on his own mission work in Maryland and Virginia. After the war, Father Carroll developed a keen interest in ecclesiastical administration. He initiated a series of meetings with his fellow ex-Jesuits for the purpose of establishing governing norms for the clergy and laying down rules for the administration and preservation of their property. He also organized a small group of clergy to represent the interests of the Ameri of American clergy and religious in Rome. In 1784, Father Carroll agreed to accept Rome's appointment as the superior of the missions of the 13 United States of America with power to confirm. At this time, Father Carroll endeavored to instruct the Vatican in the necessity of arranging for appointments such as his in a manner that would avoid the impression that Catholic priests were receiving their appointment from a foreign power. Father Carroll's audacity was rewarded in time by Rome. On March 12, 1788, the priests of the Baltimore area sent a request to the Holy Father asking for permission to elect their own bishop from their number so as to render as free as possible from suspicion and odium 
to their fellow countrymen. On May 12, 1788, after implicitly rejecting the concept of a democratically elected bishop, Pope Pius VI gave the Baltimore group a one-time only dispensation to elect their ordinary father, John Lewis, was their first choice for Bishop of Baltimore, but he was too advanced in years, so the honor fell to Father Carroll. He was selected on May 1789, and his appointment was promptly approved by the Holy See. According to Catholic historian Hugh J. Nolan, politically he, Carroll, was the most, most acceptable to the founding fathers. He also had the imprimatur of Freemason, occultist Benjamin Franklin, who had connections to all the Masonic lodges in England and Europe, and with whom Carroll maintained a warm relationship, confirms Hertz. According to Hertz, Carroll never concealed his unbridled enthusiasm for the American principles of the separation of church and state, sovereignty of the people, freedom of conscience, universal equality, and for the application of these same democratic principles to ecclesiastical administration, including the popular election of bishops by diocesan priests rather than by the Holy See. Archbishop Carroll envisioned the American church as a private corporation, not as an institution in law, which was the European view. In a sense, the whole history of the church and the United States has been the gracious accepting of that change, a constant, constant adaptation to that life in a new and secular environment, wrote Carroll. Adaptation to the dominant Protestant secular culture meant the end of an unsightly and unwashed ghetto Catholicism in favor of a more refined, genteel, homogenized, and secularized population, despite the fact that non-assimilation was the Catholic immigrant's strongest guarantee of the continuance of a strong faith. Carroll held great stock in the virtue of religious tolerance. Unfortunately, religious tolerance is not a Catholic virtue. These are, there are the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and the cardinal virtues of fortitude, justice, prudence, and temperance, but tolerance as a virtue is not to be found among them. As the German church historian Johann J. Ignat von Dollinger wrote, the apostles knew no tolerance, no leniency towards heresies. Paul inflicted formal excommunication on Hymenaeus and Alexander, and such an expulsion from the church was always to be inflicted. The apostles considered false doctrine destructive as a wicked example. With weighty emphasis, Paul declares Galatians 1.8, but though we or an angel from heaven preach a gospel to you besides the one we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Even the General John forbids the community to offer hospitality to heretics coming to it, or even to salute them. Among Bishop Carroll's many efforts to accommodate Catholicism to the American spirit, something akin to putting a square peg in a round hole, his petition was his petition to the Holy See for certain dispensations from the canonical norm, including the use of the vernacular in public worship rather than traditional Latin. The idea of conducting the sacred liturgy in a foreign tongue appeared to Carroll to be preposterous, especially for poor folks and Negroes. Hertz notes that in 1787, 
The then Father Carroll claimed that to continue the practice of a Latin liturgy in the present state of things must be owing to either the chimerical fears of innovation or to indolence and inattention in the first pastors of the national churches in not joining to solicit or indeed ordain this necessary alteration. Rome compromised with the new American bishop by permitting all sacraments to be administered in the vernacular except for essential formulas, the vernacular being exclusively the Anglo tongue, even though the vast majority of Catholics in the United States during the Carroll era were French, German, Spanish, Italians, and Irish, not English. But certainly Bishop Carroll was not without his particular talents. His contemporaries viewed him as a morally upright and learned man, a sophisticated cosmopolitan with superior social graces and many influential friends in high government offices, including President George Washington and, of course, Benjamin Franklin. In his profile of John Carroll, Catholic historian John Cogley states that Baltimore's new bishop was neither particularly charismatic nor even conspicuously pious, a characterization that appears to be borne out by the fact that Carroll wrote no religious tracts during his entire bishopric and only one prayer, a prayer for civil authorities. Perhaps his saving grace was his personal devotion to Our Lady and his encouragement of popular devotions to the Mother of God as a special patroness of the Diocese of Baltimore. In his pastoral letter of May 28, 1792, following the Diocesan Synod held in Baltimore in November 1791, Bishop Carroll reviewed select statutes passed by the Synod with special emphasis on the importance of proper rubrics by the priest offering the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and regular Mass attendance, employment of the sacraments, and financial support for their parish and the missions by the laity. He also highlighted the immediate need for vocations to the priesthood and seminary training and education. In a rather moving statement, Bishop Carroll reminded the faithful of their obligation to pray for the dead and encourage their special devotion to Mary, the Mother of God. Earlier in his pastoral statement, Carroll stated that Catholics were patriotic and loyal citizens, and he urged them to make the most of their liberty enjoyed under our equitable government and just laws. Conspicuously absent from his pastoral letter was any reference to things Roman, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, although he did make reference to the Holy See and His Holiness, the Vicar of Christ, at the beginning and end of the text of his text. The priesthood in the United States, among Bishop Carroll's most important and pressing challenges, was the need for an increase in vocations to the priesthood and the development of a native-born and educated clergy. Incredibly, in 1790, the year of Bishop Carroll's consecration in England, there were fewer than 40 priests, mostly European unordered priests, to serve more than 30,000 Catholics in the United States. The increased spiritual needs of a rapidly growing immigrant and Indian mission population made seminary training a top priority for the new bishop. Bishop Carroll had made contact with the superior of the Order of St. Sulpice while in London and encouraged and arranged for a small number of Sulpicians to come to Baltimore in July of 1791. The French Fathers set up a temporary headquarters at St. Peter's Pro Cathedral and the Seminary of St. Sulpice at Baltimore, later St. Mary's College and Seminary, came into being. 
The Sulpicians also assisted in the staffing of Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg. 115 candidates to the priesthood were accepted by the order from 1791 to 1829, resulting in 52 vocations. In late 18th and 19th century America, the daily life regulations and routines of the Catholic diocesan religious order seminary in the United States were strictly governed by priests from traditionalist European orders, including the Sulpicians, Dominicans, Vincentians, Franciscans, Benedictines, Trappists, and former Jesuits, their order having been suppressed. In these early years, the American hierarchy made every attempt to obey the 1563 decree of the Council of Trent that instructed every bishop to provide for the education of his seminarians in his own diocese. Most bishops did not take positively to the idea of a national centralized seminary, even though this meant that most school-slash-seminaries had only a handful of candidates. To effect, to offset the high cost, boys' boarding schools were all attached to many seminaries from which a significant number of candidates to the priesthood were drawn. There were some bishops who trained candidates for the priesthood within their own household or cathedral. In some cases, promising candidates were sent abroad by their bishops or superiors to the new North American College in Rome or to the American College at Louvain in Belgium for their priestly training. Rome was amply aware that there were some American bishops who harbored an anti-Roman attitude and deliberately avoided sending their seminarians abroad. Cardinal Giovanni Franzelin, a member of the Sacred Congregation of the Propaganda who prepared a report on the condition of the Catholic Church in the United States for the Pope, stated that the real reason that more candidates were not sent to the American College in Rome was the American bishops' indifference to all things coming from Rome. At the First Provincial Council in Baltimore, held October 17, 1829, the archbishops and prelates in attendance issued a remarkable pastoral letter to the Roman Catholic clergy of the United States on the subject of sacerdotal perfection, in which they stressed that faults which are trivial in the layman and crimes are crimes in the priest, and that nothing is more necessary to the fulfillment of priestly vows than the spirit of prayer. On the matter of clerical scandals, they warned, the Savior declared woe to the world because of scandals, and also foretold that owing to the imperfection of our nature and the evil propensities of the human race, scandals must come. But he announced that his wrath against those by whose fault these evils would arise. We cannot forget that it was chiefly through the misconduct of clergymen that several occasions of a lamentable schism were given in our province. How has the progress of religion been impeded? Many, how many criminal souls have been precluded from a return to mercy? How many of the wavering have been thrown back in despair? How many have been driven from the sacraments? Let us call upon you to aid us in guarding our infant churches against such dreadful calamities for the time to come. Even the ardent Americanist John England, first bishop of Charleston, was forced to admit that the example of a pious and zealous clergyman, though of limited 
attainments is a richer treasure to the church than Italians, than talents and learning and eloquence combined. Bishop Francis Patrick Kenrick, the Irish-born founder of St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia, an apostolic delegate to the first plenary council of Baltimore in 1852, who became Archbishop of Baltimore in 1842, believed that a Catholic priest needed to be inculcated with all the virtues, especially humility, disinterestedness, obedience, docility, temperance, and purity, in order to redeem the character of the priesthood, which some unworthy men continue to degrade, the rigors of seminary life. In the diocesan seminary in the United States, Joseph White provides a marvelous historical view of early seminary life in the United States and the tradition of Trent that holds a priest to be a man set apart from other men to fill by far the greatest and noblest of all ministries in offering the holy sacrifice of the Mass and administering the sacraments. All seminary life in both diocesan and order seminaries was subordinated to the development of a supernatural life with the French school of spirituality and training dominating the American scene for much of the late 1700s and early 1800s. Special care was given to the morals of seminarians and to training that would provide the internal discipline and fortitude necessary to sustain celibate practice. Following the edicts of the Council of Trent, the officers of holy orders were set at seven and divided into, not, into minor orders. Those, those of the porter, lector, exorcist, and acolyte, and major orders, subdeaconship, deaconship, and the priesthood. The candidate, candidates for the priesthood used standard texts of dogmatic theology approved by Rome, and Thomistic scholasticism was the order of the day, especially after Pope Leo XIII initiated a Thomistic revival in the late 1800s. Students in all major seminaries were required to attend 20 or more hours of class a week through their three years of theology extended to four years in 1910. Seminary textbooks on the spiritual life incorporated the church's classic works such as the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola and traditional devotions such as the rosary, devotion to the sacred heart and adoration of the blessed sacrament. Seminary rules were read at mealtime to remind students, faculty, and clergy of what was expected of them both in the seminary and the outside world. The traditional cassock was considered the ordinary uniform of the seminarian. There was absolutely no smoking and no consumption of alcohol, like beverages. Seminarians were forbidden to visit in each other's room. Dorm doors were to remain open, and particular friendships were discouraged and a subject of immediate correction. The penalty for any infraction of the rules was immediate expulsion from the seminary. Weekdays and weekend schedules were rigidly controlled, with specific times set aside for classwork, study, prayers, spiritual readings, and group recreation and sport that encouraged manliness and a feeling of comradeship among the young men. As White noted, the Catholic seminary inspired an esprit ecclesiastique that enforced the unique nature of the Catholic priesthood. Typically, each seminarian had a regular confessor 
and spiritual director in whom he could confide. This relationship of confessor to seminarian slash penitent was so powerful and so intimate that the former was not called into other considerations of the candidate so as to keep the seal of confession inviolate. The Sulpician father, the Sulpician priest father, Francis Harvey, Harvey, once remarked, it is very hard to live up to the spiritual views of life, seeing that materialism and naturalism are identified with the glory of the country. However, by God's grace, the priesthood in America managed to flourish for another 50 years before the rot of Americanism, a species of modernism, began to work its mischief. Traditionalism rises as the age of Carol Dims. In the 50 years following the deaths of Archbishop Carroll in 1815 and his chosen successor to the Metropolitan See of Baltimore, Archbishop Leonard Neal in 1817, the Holy See was about able to put a break in the growth of anti-Roman separatist factions in the United States, chiefly through the selections of more traditional-minded bishops drawn from various ethnic groups and religious orders. Actually, this strategy was already moving into place at the turn of the 19th century with the elections of the, in the Amer, to the American Episcopate of Caracciolini Friar Francisco Poro Renato, Bishop of New Orleans in 1801, Dominican Richard Luke Conkinen, First Bishop of New York in 1808, Franciscan Michael Francis Egan, first Bishop of Philadelphia in 1810, the great French missionary priest Jean-Louis Lefebvre de Savaroux, first Bishop of Boston in 1810, French Sulpician Benedict J. Flaget, first Bishop of Bardstown, Louisville in 1810, Dominican John Conley, Bishop of New York in 1814, and Sulpician Louis Guillaume, as Bishop of New Orleans in 1815. Rome's selection for the See of Baltimore in 1817 after the democratic elections of Archbishops Carroll and Neal was the French-born Sulpician Ambrose Marichal. During Archbishop Marichal's tenure, Father John England of Ossory, Ireland, and another Irish priest, Patrick Kelly, were secretly consecrated bishops of Charleston and Richmond, respectively by intriguing Irish prelates from Dublin and Cork without the knowledge, much less the approval, of the Archbishop of Baltimore. Archbishop Marshall was succeeded in 1828 by another pro-Roman, the English-born Archbishop James Whitfield. Bishop John England was coming, was among the conspicuously uninvited guests at Whitfield's consecration. Under Whitfield's leadership, the German-dominated Redemptorist order made great strides in the archdiocese, and the archbishop used his personal fortune to further church interests. The 33-year-old Sulpician bishop Samuel Eccleston succeeded Whitman, Whitfield in 1834. At the time of his death in 1851, there were only 327 priests in the entire U.S., and the Archdiocese of Baltimore claimed 103 of them to help serve the diocese, 100,000 Catholics, and staff, its 83 churches and chapels, six ecclesiastical seminaries, and other church-run institutions. The solitary effects 
of the election of Marshall, Whitfield, Eccleston, and other ethnic and traditional-minded bishops by Popes Pius the Pius the Seventh, Leo the Twelfth, Pius the Eighth, and Gregory the Sixteenth were evident in the proceedings of the American bishops. Seven provincial councils that took place between 1829 and 1849. A provincial council is a meeting of an archbishop with the bishops of his province and prelates, including superiors of religious orders. It was an era of new zeal for Christ and his church, and the tenor of the pastoral letters from these councils reflected this new competence. Among the major themes that were repeatedly addressed by the American bishops during the first half of the 19th century were the importance of parochial schools and Catholic institutions of higher education in the education and formation of Catholic youth, as well as the great need for religious vocations to the priesthood and sisterhood. The bishops consistently propounded away at the importance of supernatural grace in the life of the Christian and the importance of regular mass attendance and the necessity of the sacraments, especially Holy Communion and Penance. The bishop's pastoral letter of April 1837 addressed the issue of the growing persecution of Catholics in the United States, including the publication of anti-Catholic tracts and books that promoted anti-Catholic bigotry. The Fourth Provincial Council of Baltimore was opened by Archbishop Samuel Eccleston of Baltimore on May 16, 1840. Ten bishops accepted the archbishop's invitation to attend the council, and representatives from the Sulpician, Dominican, and Redemptorist orders were also present. In their pastoral letter, the American hierarchy bishops warned Catholic laity and clergy of the menace of mixed marriages, that is, the marriage of Catholics and to non-Catholics. It also reiterated Gregory XVI's absolute condemnation of secret societies, including Freemasonry. Three years later, at the Fifth Provincial Council, the bishops again <sighs> repeated the Church's condemnation of secret societies as well as dangers posed by the practice of civil divorce. The latter issue was of particular significance for the Catholic Church in America, for it demonstrated both the absurdity of the doctrine of separation of church and state and the power and willingness of the secular state to undermine the doctrinal and moral teachings of the Roman Catholic Church in America. At the Sixth Provincial Council of 1846, Archbishop Eccleston hosted 23 bishops and the representatives of four religious orders. Special recognition was given to the rise of the Oxford movement in England and the return of so many prominent Englishmen to the church of their forebears. Our Lady, under the title of the Blessed Virgin Mary, conceived without sin, was chosen as patroness of the province of Baltimore that comprised Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Charleston, Savannah, Richmond, Wheeling, Erie, and the Vicariate Apostolic of Florida. Prior to the May 1849 opening of the 7th Provincial Council of Baltimore, Archbishop Eccleston invited Pope Pius IX, then in exile at Gaeta, to attend the proceedings. In the pastoral letter that followed, the American hierarchy with one voice praised the courage of the Holy Father and reminded the faithful of the divine origin of the papacy. <clears throat> On behalf of the American hierarchy, Archbishop Eccleston also revived the custom 
of the Peter's Pence Collection to support the religious and charitable works of the Holy Father. The American bishops also proclaimed their enthusiastic support for the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. The position of the anti-Americanist and pro-Roman faction of the American hierarchy during this period was strengthened by a steady stream of papal encyclicals emanating from Rome that attacked certain modernist tendencies and practices in Europe and the United States. Among the most memorable was Pope Gregory XVI's 1832 encyclical letter, Marari Bos, on liberalism and religious indifferentism that was addressed to the Universal Church. Pope Gregory XVI was the bane of secret societies and anti-clerical revolutionaries in Europe who were plotting the fall of the papal state. He used his encyclicals to condemn the propagation of false and perverted doctrines and errors that were assailing both the church and the public order, most especially the idea that the church was in need of restoration and regeneration, the rebellion against legitimate authority, the conspiracy against clerical celibacy, the attack on the indissolubility of the marriage bond, civil divorce, the demon of religious indifferentism that holds it is possible to obtain eternal salvation of the soul by the profession of any kind of religion as long as morality is maintained, and the pernicious doctrine of the separation of church and state. The beleaguered pontiff also attacked immoderate freedom of opinion, license of free speech, and desire for novelty that bring about a pestilence more deadly to the state than any other. Only two years later, Gregory XVI was forced to issue a second encyclical, Singulare Nox, Nos, that specifically condemned the negative response to Morari Boss by the prominent French prelate, Abbe Felicite Robert de Lamennais. The Pope also censored Lamennais' unrestrained desire for innovation in opposition to the received and holy apostolic inheritance. Unable to reconcile his democratic theories with the office of the papacy and the church's magisterium, Lamennais left the priesthood, joined the French revolutionary government, and turned apostate. He died unrepentant in Paris on February 27, 1854. In the United States, Americanist-minded bishops like John England of Charleston and John J. Hughes of New York claimed that Marari Voss pertained only to France and not to the United States, forgetting perhaps that the U.S. Declaration of Independence explicitly sanctions the principle of revolution. During his episcopacy, Bishop England made every effort to keep his priests away from the Sulpicians in Baltimore, claiming that, all, that French priests didn't fit well into the American landscape. When he addressed a joint session of Congress and declared, I would not allow to the Pope or to any bishop of our church outside this union the smallest interference with the humblest vote of our, at our most insignificant ballot box, the members of Congress gave England a thunderous ovation. <sighs> the irregularity of Bishop England's secret consecration in Ireland as the first bishop of Richmond and his adamant Americanist views tended to make him persona non grata among some American bishops. 
the Americanist revolution quietly simmers. During the second half of the 19th century, the transformation of the Roman Catholic Church in America to the American Church accelerated. Massive immigration from Ireland following the potato famine of 1845 to 1846 and from Germany and the Slavic nations in the 1870s had a profound effect on the ethnic constitu constituency of the American hierarchy. With some exceptions, the Irish prelates aligned themselves with the national church and the German hierarchy, along with other non-Irish prelates, aligned themselves with Rome. By examining the three plenary councils that took place between 1852 and 1884 uh, in the mother sea of Baltimore, we can observe an almost imperceptible paradigm shift in ecclesiastical politics in America, a shift in emphasis that was identified by a favorable view of Episcopal collegiality, a determined national policy of reckless assimilation and homogenization of the Catholic immigrant population, and a dangerous accommodation to the growing secular state. A plenary or a national council is a formal assembly of the entire national episcopacy convoked by the apostolic see or at the request of the national hierarchy. All of the plenary councils in the United States in the second half of the 19th century were held in Baltimore and chaired by Archbishop of Baltimore, chaired by the Archbishop of Baltimore with the approval of Rome. In modern times, the subject matter to be treated at plenary councils is generally restricted to matters of discipline, the reformation of abuses, the repression of crimes, and the progress of the Catholic cause. The first plenary council held at the request of the American hierarchy took place on the feast of the Ascension, 1852. Included among the 31 American bishops in attendance was the future Saint Bishop John N. Newman of Philadelphia. The meeting was hosted by Archbishop Francis P. Kendrick. Special attention was given to the pressing issue of improving ecclesiastical administrative order and discipline and to the ongoing concern of religious vocations, parochial school education, and support for the missions at home and abroad, and a statement intended to counter anti-Catholic prejudices, this that in reality stemmed from social, political, and cultural factors than religious bias. The bishops urged Catholics to conscientiously discharge their civil duties and to publicly manifest their civil allegiance to their country. Although the Civil War loomed on the national horizon, the bishops did not rake up did not take up the issue of slavery that was already tearing apart the Protestant churches. When war did come between the states, 1861-1865, Catholics fought on both sides, and the American hierarchy upheld their loyalty to their respective states, with bishops such as Archbishop John Hughes of New York, though not an abolitionist, taking up the Union cause, and bishops of the South, like Bishop Patrick Lynch of Charleston, taking up the Confederacy cause. The stunning courage of Catholic nuns who rendered medical and humanitarian aid to both Union and Confederate soldiers and civilians during the bloody four years, bloody four-year conflict proved to be one of the most effective antidotes to the anti-Catholic propaganda of the nativist Know Nothing movement of the 1850s. 
in 18, in October 1866, after a 14-year respite, the American hierarchy met for the second plenary council held in Baltimore, again at the request of the American bishops. Archbishop Kenrick's successor, Archbishop Martin J. Spaulding, led the proceedings. In their pastoral letter of October 21, 1866, ecclesiastical authority, the bishops engaged in an interesting exercise in semantics concerning the traditional Catholic doctrine, extra ecclesium nulla salus. For readers unfamiliar with this thrice-declared ex-cathedra decree, I have set below in the doctrine, set below the doctrine as contained in the bull Cantate Domino of Pope Eugene IV, issued at the Council of Florence in 1445. The most holy Roman Catholic Church firmly believes, professors and preachers, that none that none of these those existing outside the Catholic Church, not only pagans, but also Jews and heretics and schismatics, can have a share in the in eternal life, but that they will go into eternal fire, which were prepared for the devil and his angels, unless before death they are joined with her, and that so important is the unity of this ecclesiastical body, that only those remaining within this unity can profit by the sacraments of the church unto salvation, and they alone can receive eternal recompense for their fast, their almsgiving, their other works of Christian piety, and the duties of a Christian soldier. No one let his almsgiving be as great as it may. No one, even if he pour out his blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he remain within the bosom and the unity of the Catholic Church. In their October 1866 pastoral letter, American, the American bishops reported, re rewarded the doctrine of extra ecclesium nulla salus to accommodate the sensibilities of non-Catholics. The authority recognized in the Catholic Church preserves the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and exhibits to the world one body and one spirit because there is one faith as there is one Lord whose revelation it is outside of this one fold and of the one shepherd. Divisions arise and are perpetuated because there is no supreme tribunal by which they might be extinguished. Sects are multiplied and religious indifference or unbelief is sought as a refuge from the contradiction of tongues. Perhaps the, most, the more liberal-minded of American bishops at the Second Plenary Council were still chafing from Pope Pius IX's earlier attack on liberalism, the landmark encyclical Quanta Cora, with the addendum Syllabus Erroneum, Erroman, issued on December 8, 1864, which contained 80 condemned and anathematized propositions that undergird the entire foundation uh, of modern heretical theories, including pantheism, naturalism, rationalism, religious indifferentism, and latitudinarianism, the pests of socialism, communism, secret societies, biblical societies, and clerical liberal societies, Errors that deny that the religion of the Catholic Church is the only true religion. Errors concerning civil society, both in itself and in relation to the Church. Errors concerning 
natural and cultural and Christian ethics and Christian marriage, errors regarding the sole power of the sovereign pontiff, and finally errors having reference to modern liberalism. It is a point of historic interest that church historians report that the main emphasis for this all-out attack on the chief errors of the time came from none other than the Cardinal Archbishop of Perugia, Giacchino Vincenzo Raphael Luigi Petri, known to history as Pope Leo XIII. Shortly after the publication of the syllabus that was 12 years in the making, Archbishop Spalding issued a pastoral letter in which he claimed that Pius IX's syllabus did not apply to the United States under its free constitution, but to a form of European false liberalism of radicals, and hence there were no incompatibilities between the syllabus and the American way. Spaulding said he believed that the Founding Fathers, America's own aristocracy, acted correctly when they adopted the First Amendment to the Constitution separating church and state, and that such a policy was not contrary to Catholic principles. He asserted that the his American that the American Revolution had been inaugurated in the name of God and went on to explain that we can indeed form an idea of a government more or less free when society is virtuous, moral, and religious without instituting that without insisting that it necessarily embrace the true religion. In other words, a nation can be indifferent to Christ the King and still reap the benefits of a graceless morality. Spalding sent a copy of his pastoral to Rome and requested a clarification, but reportedly received neither a clarification nor a rebuke for his widely disseminated statement. Spalding was joined in his opinion that the syllabus didn't mean that it what it plainly stated by Bishop James Roosevelt Bailey of Newark, an Episcopalian convert and nephew of Mother Elizabeth Bailey Seaton, founder of the Sisters of Charity. Consistent with the new party line of the bishops with Americanist tendencies, Bishop Bailey suggested that to take the papal bull literally was to misinterpret it. Unfortunately, wishful thinking never changes reality, and the unpalatable reality for the opponents of the syllabus was that the papal bull was a universally promulgated document binding on all Catholics throughout the world, and bishops included, and that the separation of church from state and state from church was explicitly condemned without exception by Pius IX in Proposition 55 of the syllabus. Indeed, the syllabus was exactly what the church's enemies said it was, a blanket condemnation and anathematization of religious liberty, civil supremacy, and modern culture. American hierarchy divided at First National at First Vatican Council. On December 6, 1864, two days before he issued the syllabus, Pius IX announced his intention to call a general council at a session of the Congregation of Rights for the Papacy of correcting modern errors and to revise legislation of the Church. After five years of painstaking preparation, Vatican Council I opened on December 8, 1869, 305 years after closing the Council of Trent 
on December 4, 1563. The major schematas to be set before the Council Fathers involved matters of dogma, church discipline, religious orders, oriental churches and missions, and ecclesiastical political questions. 774 cardinals, archbishops, and bishops, as well as 40 abbots and generals of religious orders and other eligible prelates participated in the council proceedings. The American delegation included all seven archbishops, 37 of 47 bishops, and two vicars apostolic, one of whom was 35-year-old Bishop James Gibbons, the youngest prelate at the council. Of all the debated issues of the council, none was more hotly contested than the definition of papal impalatability, which, interestingly enough, was not part of the original schematas planned for the council, although a large number of the memorials submitted by the Episcopates during the council's preparatory stage did request that such a definition be put on the formal agenda. Were it not for the notorious media speculation and agitation on the question of papal authority and papal infallibility that accompanied the opening of the council, the matter may not have been taken up at the time. As it was, the public debate on the matter became so volatile that no less than 500 prelates petitioned Pius IX to approve a petition that would bring the issue to the floor of the council for full debate. On March 6, 1870, the draft of the decree on the Church of Christ was given a new 12th chapter, Romanum Pontificum in Rebus Fede et Morum Defendus Erare Non Passe. The Roman Pontiff cannot err in defining matters of faith and morals. It has been stated that the doctrine of the primacy of the terror of Peter and papal infallibility in matter of faith and morals at the time of the council was generally accepted as dogma by the Catholic faithful throughout the world. As a general statement, this is true, but it certainly was not true of all the American bishops. At Vatican Council I, those who did take a position against the ex-cathedral affirmation of the popularly accepted doctrine explained they did so on the belief that such action was inopportune and impolitic. If it is clear from the American Bishops' 1866 Plenary Council of Baltimore statement on Episcopal collegiality that the real source of distress in, of many in the American delegation was that the definition of papal impalatability undermined the theological basis for Episcopal collegiality. <coughs> About half of the American delegation and attendance at the council opposed the doctrine of papal impalability. They included Archbishops Peter Richard Kenrick of St. Louis, brother of Francis Kenrick and the deceased Archbishop of Baltimore, John Baptist Purcell of Cincinnati, and John McCloskey of New York, and Bishops John Marcel Barreau of St. Augustine. Michael Domine of Pittsburgh, Bishop McQuaid of Rochester, and Edward Fitzgerald of Little Rock. For the record, Archbishop Peter Kenrick had also opposed the dogma of the Immaculate Conception defined by Pope Pius IX in 1854. Those Americans 
who were strongly in favor of the ex-cathedral pronouncement included Archbishop Martin, Martin Spalding of Baltimore and Bishops John J. Williams of Boston, James Wood of Philadelphia, and John Conroy of Albany, one day before the outbreak of the Franco-German War after months of open and fierce debate, the final vote was taken on the question. There was little doubt which way it would go. Some American bishops did not want to go on record as opposing the new dogma, so they had left the council early and were not present for the last balloting. Only two bishops, one of which was Bishop Edward Fitzgerald, voted non placid. Thus it was that on July 18, 1870, Pope Pius IX solemnly proclaimed the apostolic primacy in the popes of Rome and the dogma of papal infallibility. While, when therefore anyone says that the Pope of Rome has only the office of supervision or of guidance and not the complete and highest power of jurisdiction over the entire church, not merely in matters of faith and morals, but also in matters which concern the discipline and administration of the church throughout the entire world, or that the Pope has only the chief share but not the entire fullness of this highest power, or that this power, or that this his power is not actual and immediate, either overall in individual churches or overall in individual clergy and faithful, let him be anathema. Faithfully adhering, therefore, to the tradition inherited from the beginning of the Christian faith, we, with the approbation of the Sacred Council, for the glory of God our Savior, for the exaltation of the Catholic religion, and the salvation of Christian peoples, teach and define as a divinely revealed dogma that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when he, in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, decides that a doctrine concerning faith or morals is to be held by the entire church he possesses in consequence of the divine aid promised him in St. Peter, that infallibility with which the divine Savior wished to have his church furnished for the definition of a doctrine concerning faith or morals, and the such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves and not in consequence of the church's consent irreformable. On September 8, 1870, council proceedings were halted when armed Piedmontese marched on the Papal States. Troops loyal to King Victor Emmanuel entered Rome through the Porta Pia and proclaimed the city to be the capital of the new Italian Republic. The Pope was confined to the Vatican, literally a prisoner of the new regime. One month later in his bull of October 20, 1870, the Pope declared the council to be postponed indefinitely and it remained for Pope Pius IX's successors, Pope Leo XIII and Pope Pius X, to complete the work of Vatican Council I. In time, all the American prelates who opposed the ex-cathedral pronouncement defining papal primacy and papal infallibility, including Peter Kendrick, McCloskey, Fitzgerald, Barrow, McQuaid, and Dominic, submitted unconditionally to the doctrine. The U.S. Catholic diocesan press, upon hearing the marvelous news, that a new dogma of the church had been solemnly proclaimed by the Holy Father, spontaneously joined in the church's great celebration, as did ordinary Catholics throughout the world. However, after the American 
hierarchy returned to the states, the original enthusiasm of the Catholic press was quelled in many dioceses by order of the bishop in an attempt to stave off a Protestant backlash against a very unacumenical action by the Holy See. There are two additional footnotes to Vatican Council I that deserve the reader's attention. And I end my podcast here. I'm at 55, 46 minutes. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.